welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, I'm joined via Zoom by Dr. Benjamin Singer. Dr. Singer is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Northwestern University. He is also a pulmonary and critical care doctor at Northwestern. Ben Singer runs a lab in acute lung injury, and he will be here talking about COVID-19 and the ICU management of the disease. You won't want to miss this discussion. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. All right, I'm back here in plenary session, end of day's bunker, joined via Zoom with Dr. Benjamin Singer. Benjamin Singer is assistant professor of medicine at Northwestern University. He's a practicing pulmonary critical care doctor, and he runs a laboratory that studies acute lung injury. Ben did his medical residency at Northwestern University, where he was the chief resident, and he was in fact my chief resident. And then he went on to Johns Hopkins University, where he did his pulmonary critical care fellowship, and he's back at Northwestern as faculty. And in my mind, there is no one who's better in pulmonary critical care and in all things medicine than Ben Singer. And maybe on some podcast, I'll tell, I'll tell these people why you have such a legend uh, someday on this podcast. But Ben, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So Ben, um, I don't know, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're dealing with right now on a day-to-day basis, how you're managing your schedule, how you're balancing your clinical duties with so much of the operational work that goes on behind the scenes. It's always a a complex dynamic. So on the academic side, the university has gone to an essential personnel and essential services uh, type of mode. So uh, in our laboratory, you know, we're able to maintain critical infrastructure, but we're not initiating new mechanistic experiments. Mm -hmm. Um, Our studies of patients with severe viral pneumonia are ongoing, Mm -hmm. and of course, including uh, patients with uh, with COVID-19. Uh, but the academic side is uh, is quite slow in terms of activity. That doesn't mean I can't still read and write, of course. I see. Uh, in terms of the, the clinical operations, uh, our hospital, as well as many hospital systems across the country, have needed to expand their ICU coverage to brace and uh, and take care of the, the increase in, in critically ill patients as part of the COVID-19 pandemic. I see. Uh, but when uh, but when I'm not uh, in the hospital, I'm uh, working from home, as they say. I see. You've been you've been relegated to home, and um, and you attend, of course, in the ICU several weeks a year. Um, uh, and uh, and you're not due for a while, or you're, is it coming up soon? The schedules uh, are in flux. We have uh, a tiered system of backup schedules, uh, anticipating both an increase in patient volume. And then, uh, unfortunately, we have to build in the possibility of provider illness mm-hmm. uh, into the into the schedule. 
And how are you equipped and how's Northwestern equipped on personal protective equipment or the PPE, which I know is plaguing many hospitals around this country? Fortunately, uh, we're in good shape, but that doesn't mean that we're not vulnerable Mm -hmm. as uh, PPE becomes a scarce commodity uh, across the country. We are, as many other health systems are, exploring ways to extend the uh, use of PPE beyond what would uh, otherwise be done, look at ways to rejuvenate PPE once it's been used for, for a patient, uh, and, uh, and other ways to uh, extend the supply chain. Ways I've heard are the idea that somebody would, you know, somebody could steam an N95 mask for a few seconds or deliver radiation to an N95 mask um, so that it would be able to be disinfected and reused. Are those the kinds of things you're thinking about or, or even other things? Now, the protocols that are out there involve uh, UV radiation. Uh, they involve uh, existing sterilization techniques using uh, chemical sterilization, like mm-hmm. methylene oxide may be a possibility. Uh, again, none of these are uh, firmly rooted in evidence or even uh, you know, kind of a, a chemical engineering basis yet, right. uh, but, but they're absolutely being discussed. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And in terms of facial protection, do you use face shields or do you use goggle protection or, you know, what, what do you have uh, sort of above the nose? Yeah, so the, right. So the standard uh, would be in addition to a mask and the, the type of mask is based on the, the risk, whether you're involved in an aerosol generating mm-hmm. procedure or not. And then uh, eye, eye protection. So uh, goggles or face shield. I see. And, uh, and just so listeners who don't know, but classic aerosolizing generating procedures are bronchoscopy, intubation. Uh, those are the ones that there's at least some sort of laboratory evidence that uh, the viral particles can be aerosolized for on the order of, you know, 15, 20 minutes in the air or something like that, um, that they're actually suspended in the air. Is that is that accurate? Uh, that's right. So uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus responsible for COVID-19, is primarily spread through droplets, mm-hmm. which are not suspended in the air for, for very long. But in certain settings, like suctioning of the airway, particularly during intubation, bronchoscopy, uh, and a few other procedures, there's a risk of generating these ultrafine particles, these aerosols, which uh, would stay in the air for uh, a longer period of time and, and settle under gravity at a, at a much slower rate. Um, and so, so that's the, uh, the reason for the, the tiered precautions. I see. And uh, just in terms of raw numbers, uh, Chicago, to my knowledge, is not being hit yet as hard as, as New York City. Um, how, are, how are you guys doing at Northwestern? Um, how, many, how many COVID cases have you diagnosed? Um, so and I'm not going to share our, our internal numbers sure. uh, specifically, but, but we are uh, caring for a number of patients, uh, both in the ICU and on the general medical floor uh, with, uh, with COVID-19. Okay. So I guess I wanted to ask you some questions about sort of the intensive care management of these patients. And, you know, as you know, thankfully, um, you know, the majority of people who seem to have this condition have a mild or moderate form of the disease. Um, They're probably not getting anywhere near uh, the service that Ben Singer is going to be attending on. But there are going to be a few patients who inevitably get to your service, get to with it, who need intensive care. Um, What are the sorts of uh, presentations you see? I mean, I guess they might range from anyone who needs sort of high flow supplemental oxygen to people who require intubation. What are the kinds of management considerations you think about when you think about oxygenation for these patients? Yeah, a few things. So thank you for emphasizing that fortunately still the majority of cases are are mild and don't even require hospitalization, let alone intensive care. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
we have noticed that people who develop uh, hypoxemia, even to the point where they're you know, just needing a bit of nasal cannula, that can, uh, in many cases, be a harbinger of rapid progression of hypoxemia. So we've had a low threshold uh, to bring those patients to the ICU and even consider them for intubation uh, at an earlier time in their course than we might otherwise. Mm-hmm. There are a few considerations that go into that. One is that we have seen a number of patients with rapid progression to severe uh, hypoxemia outside of uh, the mechanical ventilatory setting. Another is that these intubations need to be as controlled as possible and as well planned out as possible, mm-hmm. uh, planned well in advance in order to maximize provider safety. Mm-hmm. I see. So um, uh, that's a great point. So then, you know, so somebody who you might be willing to have watched a little bit longer um, is somebody you might be thinking about intubating sooner in a control setting, you know, before, uh, you know, not in the wee hours of the morning, not in the heat of the moment. Right. And and we would much rather prefer that these intubations happen in a controlled setting with all the equipment available in the intensive care unit than a crash intubation right. on the floor, for example. Right. And how are you utilizing... Um, uh, uh, interventions short of intubation, such as BiPAP or other sort of assisted respiratory interventions? The the use of non-invasive ventilation uh, generates uh, a lot of droplets mm. and probably generates a fair amount of aerosol also. And so we are, uh, there's, there's no absolute contraindication, of course, but um, we are very much favoring not using uh, non-invasive ventilation. Uh, for for that reason. The high-flow nasal cannula discussion is uh, interesting. There are kind of two points. One is because it does provide some positive pressure, there probably is some amount of aerosolization that occurs. And because it's also a heated and humidified system, you're also more likely to generate droplets, mm. which uh, outside of aerosolization would be a, a mode of uh, transmission. Uh, that being said, we have data that use of high-flow nasal cannula systems can decrease the rate of intubation, which is, of course, something I think everyone would like to avoid, if at all possible, both Mm -hmm. for provider and patient-centered reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, So right now, um, we are trying to be very cautious about our use of high-flow nasal cannula systems and avoid uh, non-invasive ventilatory systems, if at all possible. I see. When you decide to intubate someone, are you primarily making that decision based on pulse oximetry based on uh, arterial blood gas? Or is it based on work of breathing? Um, you know, how, how is it looking to you, you know, clinically when you make the call to, you know, this is the person we need to intubate? Standard rules, of course, apply. Uh, we, uh, as I mentioned, have had a lower threshold of intubation because of our the recognized rapid clinical deterioration of patients mm-hmm. once they demonstrate even what would otherwise be considered uh, mild hypoxemia. Mm. Um, and, and in those cases, their work of breathing and the, the eyeball test wouldn't necessarily otherwise tell you that they need to be intubated. I see. Um, so, so we are going based on uh, trajectory, particularly when they develop uh, hypoxemia. I see. And then you intubate somebody, you put them on the vent. Um, what is the initial sort of ventilatory settings you're using and what are the kind of pressures you're getting back from the lung? It's interesting. So while certainly the the classic ARDS, low compliance, stiff lung type of physiology has been described, uh, we have observed a number of patients who are actually quite easy to ventilate. Mm. 
and have uh, quite good compliance uh, that is a bit of a disconnect from their degree of hypoxemia. Um, so they tend to be, and the, I'm making generalities yes. here, but they tend to be uh, responsive to PEEP, positive end expiratory pressure. So we are favoring a, a higher PEEP strategy uh, for patients uh, unless there are uh, obvious reasons not to. How high? Seven and a half, 10, 15? So we're, we're following the, the PEEP table from the PROCEVA trial. This okay. is a, a trial of prone ventilation, uh, which is a, a table that is arbitrary to be sure, but mm -hmm. uh, it gives very reasonable pairings of FiO2 and, uh, and PEEP. I see. Um, I wanted to ask you about prone ventilation. Now, you know, when I was a resident in Northwestern, uh, prone ventilation, it has had enthusiasm and a decline in enthusiasm. And then recently, I think just in the last maybe five, six years, um, sort of a resurgence in enthusiasm based on a New England Journal paper. Um, you know, who are the people you're thinking about prone ventilation? Uh, what do you think about the data is, I mean, I certainly think prone ventilation is a great way to sort of, um, help oxygenate someone you're having difficulty oxygenating, but is it actually a mortality benefit? Is it a life-saving procedure as well? Do you think of it that way too? Um, and who are the people you think about proning? Yeah, so there's a lot to the proning discussion. Um, I think the data are as favorable as any in critical care for a mortality <laughs> right. benefit in, uh, in for prone positioning, particularly because it is really easy. So many healthcare systems, particularly ours, have gotten really good at doing it uh, manually. So we don't need any special equipment. Uh, the nurses are exceptionally good at uh, initiating prone ventilation. Uh, and it's we have a, a, a strong safety record. And it, it's it's really quite a low risk intervention, Yeah, uh, which, which is always a, a good thing when it comes to vulnerable critical care patients. Um, who do we consider proning? I think people um, who are you know, developing high ventilatory support with regards to the oxygenation parameters, so FiO2 and PEEP, um, those are the people that we will consider for early proning. And the mantra is kind of uh, early and um, sustained proning, so at least 16 hours a day seems to be where we get the benefit. And, and in terms of the, the things that we're looking for to see, is it working? Certainly you want to look and see if you're able to safely use the ventilator in someone who is prone. Of course, if they develop hemodynamic instability, hemoptysis, some other things, you know, that, that would be considered a, a proning failure. Um, but it's not all about oxygen, right? So we see in the, the trials that the survival curves continue to separate well after proning periods have ended. Hmm. So there's clearly something, uh, you know, uh, less readily measurable that's happening to impact patient mortality from proning. I see. And when you prone the patient and or when you have them supinated, um, are you using SIMV predominantly or what type of ventilation strategy are you using? Yeah, so, so we almost never use um, SIMV, but uh, generally we'll, we'll be using uh, a low tidal volume, volume controlled AC mode. Mm -hmm. Uh, or we can uh, often use, and we will often use, a, uh, a pressure control uh, mode with close attention to resulting tidal volumes. And you're still aiming for, it's been a while since I've done it, what, six milliliters per kilogram? Yeah, that's right. So the, the magic uh, number in the literature is six cc's per kilogram, but lower is better. So I see. if we are, uh, are able to go even lower, uh, balancing all the factors that, that come with it, uh, we will. And then... 
this is another literature discussion that I've seen kind of from afar, which is what is the role of paralysis in ARDS and, uh, and in this setting? Um, are you paralyzing people? You have difficulty oxygenating? You paralyzing people routinely? Like I know once upon a time, we were quite enthusiastic about Nimbex. Um, so who are the people you're thinking for paralytics? Uh, right. So, so the, there are you know, kind of two major large randomized controlled trials of this, both published in the New England Journal, one showing uh, mortality benefit to uh, continuous paralytic infusion with cisatricurium, brand name there is, uh, you know, these Nimbex. Uh, this uh, type of trial was repeated uh, more recently uh, by the, the pedal network and, and found to be uh, a negative trial. And there are a lot of caveats there. Um, one important thing is that uh, patients do not need to be paralyzed to be prone. Um, so we will often add paralytics after proning if there is continued uh, gross vent dyssynchrony that doesn't respond to sedation mm -hmm. uh, or if there is uh, you know, a, a critical oxygenation problem that we need to get control of. Um, we prefer to use uh, bolus dosing, so a short course of a short-acting paralytic just to try to get control of the system rather than leaving it on for a couple days as has been done in uh, control trials. I see. Um, so this is a nice kind of review of ventilatory management in ARDS. Um, are there um, different considerations for COVID-19 or you, you're treating it predominantly like you would treat anyone with ARDS, whatever the cause of ARDS may be? Uh, there are shades of gray. You know, I mentioned some of the few physiologic uh, peculiarities that we've noticed among uh, patients with COVID-19, uh, but the bedrock is still, uh, as we can, as much as we can adhere to it, uh, solid protocol-driven, evidence-based supportive care. I see. Now let me shift to, uh, I guess, let me stray away from solid protocol-based, evidence-based care. Um, you know, I've seen a number of guidelines who are enthusiastic about a number of compounds coming down the pipeline. And I think many of these are being tested in randomized trials like remdesivir, the Gilead drug, uh, which is thought to have uh, anti-coronavirus properties, but also, you know, it wasn't that long ago before it had anti-Ebola virus properties as well. Um, I've heard a lot of enthusiasm for the HIV protease inhibitors. We had a recent trial with uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, which we can talk about, um, and a lot of enthusiasm for the IL-6 antibodies like tocilizumab. Um, and just today I saw that the Harvard... Um, Critical care group is recommending hydroxychloroquine and steroids. I'm sorry, not not steroids, statins. Hydroxychloroquine and statins. And I and I had been following the statin in ARDS literature, and I thought that that was not so good. So I don't know. Yeah, what where, I don't know where you want to jump in, but maybe take us through some of these compounds and and who you think about it. Um, of course, you know who you think about it for a trial and who you think about it off protocol. Uh, there's a lot to that question, Vinay. Uh, so so let maybe we can back up and, yeah. and conceptually just kind of think about biologically what we're trying to accomplish here. So, you know, you could imagine that there are um, two overlapping phases of coronavirus disease, right? And this, this, I'm going to speak very conceptually now, and some of this is empirically understood and, and some less so. But you could imagine that there's a, a point in the illness when you have rampant viral replication spreading uh, from cell to cell through the ACE2 receptor. And then when there is sufficient host damage and immune response, you end up with a over-exaggerated host response that results in organ failure. And this is accompanied by what some refer to as a, as a cytokine storm. 
So, so if we buy into that conceptual framework, it would make sense that antivirals that are effective against SARS-CoV-2 would have more benefit early in the course during the viral replication phase. And then when the host response becomes the more deleterious part of the response, you might imagine that drugs targeting the host, like IL-6 modulators that you mentioned, tocilizumab and others, uh, may be of more benefit. So I think conceptually, that's that's one way to, to start mm. breaking it down. Uh, now about the particular agent. So you, you mentioned the early enthusiasm around uh, ritonavir or apinavir. Um, the, the trial that was published in the New England Journal is remarkable for how quickly a randomized controlled trial uh, which is a fairly good trial, was published uh, in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, that's just, that's just remarkable. Uh, it was unfortunately negative, but that's enormously helpful information. Uh, you know, I know you um, talk frequently about um, the harms associated with administration of drugs without a good evidence base, right? The, um, uh, the use of drugs off-label in a kind of one-off per-patient fashion or for compassionate use is confounded. The interpretation of that N of 1 experiment is confounded by a, a few things. You know, one is a, a natural human belief that is ultimately incorrect, that any death that occurs in that scenario is due to the disease, and that any survival when a patient is receiving that medication is due to the drug. And of course, that, that's not true. I mean, that, that defies uh, logic. Uh, and that's the that's the reason why these uh, ongoing randomized and particularly controlled trials, with the emphasis on control, is uh, key here. I mean, without it, we are going to be harming patients, uh, most certainly in the long run, and possibly uh, with the patient in front of us. That's well put. Um, and uh, and and you think that's true for uh, the antivirals. Um, but is it also true, you think, for the, um, the, the drugs we use in the cytokine release syndrome setting, the, uh, the, the tocilizumab? I think that's right. Um, you know, we can talk about IL-6 biology. It's, yeah. it's very complicated. I mean, there, everything from not just the, the cytokine signaling for, through inflammatory pathways, uh, but the role of IL-6 in uh, airway rejuvenation from basal cell through club cell and ciliated cell. I mean, there is uh, uh, a lot of uh, mirroring data and some human data suggesting the uh, complex nature of IL-6 biology. Uh, and again, without good controlled trial evidence, uh, it's really unclear how much benefit we're ha having and also how much harm we're having. In my mind, tocilizumab had a great marketing campaign, which was the anecdotal report of benefit for after CAR-T administration, which came out of Penn and led yep. just, you know, sort of widespread use. I mean, we see people give tocilizumab all the time in my line of work. I just see it given continuously. Um, but to my knowledge, even in that setting, the CAR-T uh, CAR cytokine release setting, uh, there's still never been a clinical study in that setting. It's all anecdotal reports. Um, uh, anecdote times many. I'm not aware of any sort of robust data there. Maybe turn for a minute to the statins. Um, what's going on with statins and ARDS? Uh, should we be giving them? I think the the recommendation that if your patient is on a statin as an outpatient, yeah. you should continue it outside of what you think might be statin toxicity. I think that's fair. Um, there are data to support that practice. 
But in terms of statin initiation, we have good data from large randomized controlled uh, trials that initiation of statin therapy for ARDS is not effective. Hmm. And that was both Resuvastatin and Simvastatin, I thought, in his two paired New England Journal papers a few years back. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Probably stronger data, stronger negative data, if you want to put it that way, for, uh, for Resuvastatin, yeah. but, that's, but that's right. Yeah, they had like more dialysis or more renal failure on that study. So showing that, you know, this whole idea that, well, it's not going to hurt them, uh, but it can hurt people. That's, that's the other way it cuts. No, that's right. I mean, our, our, our potential uh, to harm vulnerable patients in the setting of critical illness uh, should not be minimized. Hydroxychloroquine, how long have you been taking it? Uh, I, I have not. Uh, I have, um, uh, you know, I, I remain with equipoise about it. The available uh, in vitro data um, are provocative, but in no way definitive. Uh, I know that you have discussed uh, in various forums the available clinical data uh, from an uncontrolled study that suffered from substantial selection bias problems, outcome adjudication problems. Uh, and others. Uh, it is far from uh, prime time. It does have the potential for toxicity, particularly cardiovascular and, and other toxicities, particularly when paired with azithromycin, as was suggested in the, the clinical study. Uh, and, and so I, at, at, at this point, uh, am not uh, recommending it prophylactically or as one-off treatment outside of a study protocol. I just have an observation, you know, after many years of being an oncologist who interacts with intensive care doctors, um, you know, I come to this um, observation that it is often the case that we transfer an oncology patient to the intensive care unit and intensive care unit physicians or the staff, um, they, they raise maybe some fair questions about the management of the oncologic management. You know, um, why were you guys doing this? Is this really in this person's best interest? Have, is there perhaps sort of a, a therapeutic um, misconception in the patient's mind that this is much, like, much more likely to be beneficial than it actually is? And you often hear, I mean, anecdotally, intensive care doctors being a little bit critical about perhaps false expectations that oncology physicians may have imbued in the patients and that oncologists are trying drugs based on little rationale, that sort of thing. And yet, the interesting thing I note is that in situations like this, of like acute lung injury or you know, an emerging pandemic, um, you see intensive care physicians sort of doing the same very human thing, which is it's so easy to say, give another drug, give them some steroids, give them some simvastatin, I'm going to ask you about steroids, give them some tocilizumab, which is really the sort of the oncologist dilemma, which is what led to the situation where you know, they're coming to the ICU in the first place on all these drugs that don't make any sense. Um, do, you, do, you, do you agree that that's kind of a, a, a curious observation? No, it's a it's a... It's a great observation. It's one I had as well. I, uh, I said this to one of my colleagues uh, a couple weeks ago when a lot of these drugs were, were being given across the country uh, outside of a trial framework that uh, we're starting to act like oncologists. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. Keep, keep giving drugs like that in combos. You'll, you'll be an honorary oncologist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it, it is worth emphasizing the point again that without uh, controlled data, uh, we have the potential to impart a lot of harm for unclear benefit. Let me ask you about steroids. Now, um, there have been dueling, dueling reports. I mean, I saw some of the early data out of China suggesting that a high fraction of those patients received um, 
uh, corticosteroids. Um, but then I've also seen newer recommendations that say absolutely don't. It potentially could fuel viral um, spawning and replication. What are your thoughts on on the use of steroids? Um, who do you consider that in? Yeah, so of course, the, the data out of uh, uh, China and elsewhere demonstrating an association, so a correlative association between steroid use and improved outcomes are, are just that. It's correlative and, and confounded by, uh, by any number of things. Um, we have data from other severe respiratory viral infections, including influenza, that steroids are categorically harmful and should, should be uh, limited for that reason. And this is above and beyond the controversy that's ongoing about steroid use in ARDS generally. Um, you know, my, my view is that a lot of the benefit associated with steroid use in ARDS is related to ventilator-induced or ventilator-associated lung injury mm. or causes of ARDS that may themselves be steroid responsive. Mm -hmm. Like uh, we're actually treating a case of organizing pneumonia mm -hmm. or eosinophilic pneumonia or acute hypersensitivity pneumonitis sure. or, or some other pathology that would be predicted to be steroid responsive. Uh, but uh, of that list, uh, I would consider virus-induced ARDS to be non-steroid responsive as well as have substantial harm by the effect that steroids have on the immune response to a virus-infected host. Yeah. These patients are often already presenting uh, uh, lymphopenic and uh, top them off with a corticosteroid in the setting of a viral infection. You know, prima facie doesn't sound like a great idea, but, um, you know, hope springs eternal. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, sort of when things get really bad. Um, my reading of the literature, and I don't have firsthand experience, but when my reading of the literature is that when things get really bad in these settings, you often have somebody who's on the vent for, you know, seven days, eight days, nine days, and then they develop what appears to be a myocarditis or perhaps a viral myocarditis. Um, they have systolic dysfunction, they have cardiogenic shock, they have, uh, arrest. Um, and those people are the ones that end up coding and dying, um, uh, is is that your understanding of how this disease process works? Why is why are they having cardiac dysfunction at the end of life? Um, is it due to the virus, or you know, what's what are your thoughts on this matter? Right. So it, it's not. So the epidemiology of the COVID nineteen associated cardiomyopathy is is very unclear. I mean, some series say that it's quite common. Some say it's it's unusual. Um, so, so we just need more experience to actually understand if, if this is really a, an event or not. Um, others have reported substantial fractions of arrhythmias. Um, we, we have not observed that in our cohort um, yet, but of course our experience is early. Um, the, the, the viral receptor is present on the endothelium and myocardium, so there's biological plausibility for a direct viral effect. Mm -hmm. uh, alternative biological hypotheses are that this is an inflammatory cardiomyopathy, much as we see mm -hmm. in uh, stress from sepsis with some regularity, uh, you know, a reduced systolic function in somebody with uh, bacteremia from another cause can certainly develop all kinds of echocardiographic uh, abnormalities, uh, including systolic dysfunction. So, so I, we just don't know with enough granularity um, in whom this occurs, the consequences of it, uh, and the biological mechanisms for it. I see. I think that's well put. Um, I know our time is running short, so I might just ask you one last question of, um, 
you know, one thing that I've been looking very hard for, and I still haven't found a really great answer, is that if somebody, and I guess it'll depend on the on the the the, the threshold of intubation, but from available data, if somebody required intubation in the settings it's been performed in, what is the probability that that person is going to be able to recover? Um, what does that recovery look like? And I guess what I had seen was it looked to me in some of these papers that the probability of recovery, if it got to that point, was a low probability. Um, and it was a prolonged recovery. We're talking like 11 days on the vent sort of median. Um, uh, both those things concern me. One thing that concerns me is, of course, sort of the theoretical benefit of flattening the curve. Uh, that's great, um, but uh, you really run up against a brick wall if you're talking about 11-day ventilations for people who require ventilation. You can flatten a lot, but you got to flatten the hell out of it before you get 11 days apart. Um, the next thing that worried me is that um, it seemed like a very low percentage of people are able to survive um, coming on the vent. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, you know, I know it's so early and, and we still don't have great data, but um, how do you think about... Um, you know, by your strategy of intubating early, maybe um, you'll probably improve your outcomes, uh, hopefully. Yeah, th there's a lot we don't know. Um, our, our experience has been similar to what's been reported that these are not short ventilator courses. This raises another mm -hmm. set of issues around long-term ventilatory support, the role of tracheostomy, the risks of tracheostomy in this yeah. uh, population, both to the patient and providers. Um so taking a step back from what we know about COVID-19, just generally about recovery from ARDS, is that it can be a very prolonged recovery, even after resolution of lung inflammation and repair of lung damage. The recovery period with regard to uh, cognitive disability, neuromuscular disability uh, can last a very, very long time. Uh, and so not just the you know, days to weeks that, that you're talking about until you're separated from the ventilator, uh, but the recovery period thereafter uh, is also dramatic. I see. Uh, any any final thoughts on things we didn't get a chance to talk about? I don't want to go too long into your day. I know you have you're you're a busy man. You have other things to do. I appreciate it. Um, you know, we've touched on a lot of things. I mean, I think Vinay, you are a, a stalwart voice for doing things in a in a rational manner. Uh, you know, I think the the things that will uh, you know, move the needle on COVID-19 are unclear. We know that evidence-based standard of care, critical care is going to be our bedrock here. Mm -hmm. And we should focus on those protocols uh, with the modifications as needed for the practicalities of COVID-19 as possible. Uh, and beyond that, uh, I think enrollment in clinical trials to try to generate solid controlled data uh, to better inform what works, what doesn't, and what's harmful uh, is is absolutely essential. Yeah, somebody was, um, that's so well put. And somebody was saying on the internet, like, you know, if you had COVID-19, you would want all these things. And I, I was like, no, I wouldn't. I, I, I'm not going to take preventive hydroxychloroquine um, unless you prove to me there's some benefit. And that I have, like, really low pretest probability. And if I'm on the vent, I pray to God that people aren't going to be pumping me full of siltuximab and tocilizumab and remdesivir and Kaletra and uh, hydroxychloroquine and steroid and statin all at once. Um, you know, just give me supportive care, for for Christ's sakes, and, uh, and give me... Give me a chance on the vent. Give me my, give me my, give me at least 13 days, please. 13, no, 14 days on the vent. Um, but, you know, I don't know how you feel personally about this, but, you know, to me, it's not like if I was in that situation, I would crave these things. No, I, I don't think so either. I mean, I, I think I would want standard of care, critical care, life support. 
right? Yeah. Uh, and the chance for, uh, you know, for supportive care to have its benefit. And then the opportunity to be considered for a, a randomized controlled trial on which there's equipoise for the therapy. Yeah, I would uh, take that any day of the week. All right, Ben, there's uh, so much we didn't get to talk about that I love to talk about, like ECMO and and uh, and other things, but I guess we'll save it for another day. That'll be great. I can, I can come back another time. We can talk about uh, uh, ECMO and some of the other uh, main points that are going to come out of this. Yeah, that'll be great. Thank you so much, Ben. And uh, I guess I should tell listeners uh, a little bit about you. Uh, uh, you're a smart guy, Ben. Uh, you were always known to be a smart guy, but I think you may suffer from a photographic memory. And I guess I would say that, you know, I remember once when I was telling Ben a story about um, sort of a patient I'd seen many years ago, maybe about a decade ago, and it was a woman with um, breast cancer who had had um, uh, lymph node removal, and she had chronic lymphedema in the arm, and then she developed a sarcoma in that arm. And you said to me that that was considered, that's a syndrome. And what was it again? I think it's the Stuart Treves syndrome, right? Yeah, he has the Stuart Treves. And you said that like off the top of your head, you know, oh, so she had the Stuart Treves syndrome. I was like, how does this guy know? And I had to look it up myself. <laughs> um, but, but but Ben's like that with all things. And so I've always put a great deal of trust in you and really enjoyed learning from you many years ago when you were my chief resident in residence. So thanks so much for doing this. And we'll have you back again. My pleasure. Take care. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>